All right, I hope you have your Bibles in front of you. Please open to Romans chapter 4. As I have stated in the last couple of sermons, Uh, The book of Romans, as many of you know, was written to the church in Rome. Now, this specific church was comprised of Jew and Gentile alike. It was certainly predominantly Gentile, but it had many Jews as well. Now, here in this letter, just like he's done to others, Paul sometimes breaks away from speaking to the church at large And he begins to write specifically to a certain people group in the church. For example, he did the same thing in uh, the book of uh, uh, Ephesians when he wrote that. Besides writing to the church as a whole, many of you remember that in chapter 5, he wrote very specific verses to wives. He spoke specifically in a section to husbands, and then he went on to children. He talked about slaves, and as well as spoke with the masters. Very uh, specific verses to very specific people. Here in this letter to the Romans, Paul sometimes writes sections that only pertain to the Jews. Now, certainly the rest of the church can still benefit from it, but the subject matter is typically Jewish in nature. And more times than not, Paul is drawing attention to some of the false, uh, unbiblical doctrines that they were taught growing up in the Jewish community. Now, many of these Jews, even though they are now in the church at Rome, still struggled with many of these false beliefs. And so Paul is taking time in this somewhat lengthy letter uh, to address some of these issues and really hopefully clear up some of these common yet very important uh, misconceptions. Now, the most important theological error is that one is justified before God, or I should say how one is justified before God. Many of the Jews in the first century when this letter was written believed that they were spiritually secure. And of course, it was for different reasons. Some of them felt that, well, it's simply because I'm a child of Abraham. Some would say, well, it's because I've been circumcised according to the promise. And others would say, well, it's just simply because I'm a Jew, right? I'm one of God's chosen people. And therefore, with this critical nature of these false doctrines, Paul began dealing with this as early as chapter 2 here in the book of Romans. And then he got very direct in chapter 3 in verses 21 through 31, where he wrote specifically about justification. He wrote about redemption. He spoke of how Jesus, uh, it was his sacrifice of atonement. And of course, most importantly, how this is applied to the sinner by faith alone. Faith, of course, in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, to make his argument even more potent for these Jews, Paul took this subject matter about salvation by faith and how it is not by the works of the law, and he brought that into chapter 4, and he applied it to none other than Abraham. Now, if you want to get the attention of any of the Jews, start having a conversation. Start talking about Abraham because they'll pop up because they want to they have that discussion. Well, Paul knew uh, uh, as a Jew himself that the Jews believed that Abraham was justified by works. The Jews believed that Abraham was justified by works. Abraham, I mean, uh, Paul, of course, knew that. And so for him, he wanted to prove otherwise, of course, so he can get them back on the correct doctrinal path. And so he started here in chapter 4, taking what he talked about in chapter 3 and simply applying it to Abraham, therefore dealing with the Jews in the church. And he said here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? And of course, the matter that he's talking about was in the last part there of chapter 3, where he discussed how to have a right relationship with God. 
Okay, so he's saying, well, so what did Abraham discover in this? What did Abraham find out is what his question was. He goes, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, and that's of course he says that because the Jews believe that, he says then he had something to boast about. But he says not before God, right? But in verse 3, he asked the question, which is the important question, well, what does the Scripture say? And then he quoted Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so he just got through talking about faith and faith and faith and faith, starting in chapter 3, verse 21, talked about redemption, talked about justification, talked about Christ on the cross, his atonement or his propitiation. And now he says, well, Abraham believed as well. Matter of fact, he says the scriptures say so. So he's saying here that Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith in God. And this is, of course, crystal clear in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which tells them that this is not something new from Paul. Paul didn't just dream this up as, you know, part of the new covenant. It's not new. Salvation by faith has been the only way to salvation all the way from the beginning, right? He says, go back to the very first book of the Bible, and you'll find it there. Salvation has always been by faith, okay? Now, for Paul, he's dealt with this issue before because there have been some other people struggling with this, and specifically those in the church of Galatia, which is why he said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, those who believe, keyword, those who believe are children of Abraham. Now, remember, folks, this was many of the Jews' claim to fame. We're children of Abraham. They love to say that, right? Well, physically, they're right. They were physically children of Abraham, but spiritually, which of course is the issue at hand, he's the father of the believing. He's the father of the believing. Now, if using the, the, the great patriarch Abraham wasn't enough, Paul then decides to, to throw King David into the mix. This is another person who was highly respected amongst the Jews, therefore the reason Paul is using him. And at the very end there of verse 5, Paul speaks about how one's faith is credited to him as righteousness. Okay, He says how a faith is credited to them as righteousness. And then he starts verse 6 by saying, David says the same thing. That's one way to start it, right? David agrees with me. He said, he, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man whom God credits righteousness, listen, apart from works. Okay? And he goes on to quote David. He quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, which is David. And David says... Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So here you have Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. He writes that David, even King David, spoke on how he credits righteous, how God credits righteousness apart from works. Can you imagine what's going on in the mind of the Jew? I mean, he just nailed them using the father of the Jewish people, Abraham, and now he goes to one of their greatest, if not the greatest, king of Israel. And he says, David says the same thing. He credits righteousness apart from works. In other words, faith. Okay? If you go back and read Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5, and Psalm 51, verses 1 through 14, this is where David sought forgiveness before God because, as we all know, what took place with Bathsheba, and then, of course, he had her husband Uriah killed. Okay? But when you read that, you will know that David understood how salvation worked. David knew it wasn't by some good that he did. He knew it was because of his faith, his confession before the Lord. And as I mentioned last week, one commentator said 
very well. He said, David knew that only God could purify and wash away his sins and blot out his iniquities. Only God could create in him a pure heart and deliver him from the guilt and from the sin that produced it. Now, in the final portion from last week, I love how Paul put together yet another level. He just, he just kept raising the bar here with the Jews. And he brought it to another level here, starting in verse 9. Look what he says. He says, is this blessedness? Now, he's speaking of the blessedness that David mentioned in verses 7 and 8. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith, in other words, not Abraham's circumcision, that's the point. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And so therefore, he gets into a question and answer thing. He goes, under what circumstances was it credited? In other words, under what circumstances was Abraham's righteousness credited? He says, was it after he was circumcised or was it before? He says it was not after, but it was before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. Folks, that is, I mean, that is just an awesome, awesome short passage. It really, really is, okay? But to make this to these Jews, he says that Abraham was declared righteous, and by the way, that's by God, okay? God is the one who declared Abraham righteous, and he did it before he was circumcised. Wow, what went through the head of the Jew when that was said, right? Circumcision did not make Abraham righteous. His faith did, okay? Abraham, to their shock and dismay, folks, was no different than a Gentile at the time he was declared righteous because he was uncircumcised. Remember, that was a big deal to them, right? He was no different than a Gentile. He wasn't circumcised when he was declared righteous. So not only does this show how wrong the Jewish rabbis were in their teachings about Abraham, but it answers the question from verse 9 that this blessedness of justification, it's for everybody. It's for the Jew or the Gentile. It's for the circumcised or the uncircumcised. And that's proven through Abraham himself, who's the father of the Jewish people. Ultimately, this is saying it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what language you speak, okay? Because salvation, according to chapter 3, verse 22, is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Great, great passage. Now, as we pick up in verse 12 this morning, we're going to see that Paul is, is not through talking about Abraham and the subject of faith, okay? The understanding of faith and faith alone is so, so important, not only just in life and to the church, but to these people specifically. And so Paul's actually going to bring it up seven more times, the word faith, in the next 14 verses. Seven more times in the next 14 verses he'll bring this up. But I want you to read with me, Verse 12. Actually, start reading in the second half of verse 11, just so you know where he's going. He says, So then, speaking of Abraham, Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. So in other words, so that righteousness might be credited to those even though they've not been circumcised. Verse 12. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. 
Now, when you read that verse, the, the, the basic point is circumcision doesn't matter as it pertains to salvation. Okay? He just said that Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people, was declared righteous before he was circumcised. Now, here in verse 12, he's simply adding that he is also the father of the circumcised. But here's a word that matters. But, (laughs) but they must be those, it says in this verse, they must be those who walk in the footsteps of faith just like Abraham, okay? He says, you know, Abraham was, by faith, was declared righteous before God. The un- therefore, the uncircumcised are declared righteous by faith. But he says, even if you are circumcised, okay? And which is great, by the way. He says, that's fine if you're circumcised, super, which is great because God commanded you to, right? You obeyed God, that's super. But your obedience to having it done was not salvific, It didn't provide you salvation. We know that already because it didn't provide salvation for Abraham. It didn't provide salvation for the other ones who weren't circumcised. He just said it. So he's saying it really doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised as far as your eternal destiny, as far as you being declared righteous. Listen, folks, circumcision was a sign Okay, matter of fact, verse 11 says that, and he received the sign of circumcision, right? It was a sign for the Jewish men physically that sets them apart before God. Okay, these are the people of the promise, okay? Well, that being said, God's plan was never just for a physical mark. God never sat back and said, Get this physical mark, woo, you're heaven bound. Yes, that's all you needed. (laughs) As if that somehow made them righteous, okay? God also wanted their hearts, didn't he? Just like he does ours. God wanted their hearts. God, God declared this, by the way, starting all the way back in the Pentateuch. The Jews should have known this. This wasn't a book in the New Testament. This was something in their own Torah. The first five books of the Bible, they should have known this. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. He says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. Here's why. Listen. So that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live. So there's a difference. Circumcising of the heart, he says, I want you to love God. I want you to love him with everything you got. MacArthur uh, states, God has always wanted, first of all, to cut away the sin that covered the heart. That's the point. Okay? Outward symbols. This is an outward symbol. Outward symbols like circumcision were always intended by God to be a mark of what took place on the inside. Okay? This outward, this, this, this outward symbol, like, like once again, circumcision, was always intended by God to be a mark of what took place already inside in your heart. See? That's what they got to understand. That's what they failed to understand. Matter of fact, later on, Jeremiah, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Jeremiah was, as you know, a prophet, the weeping prophet. He was a prophet to the southern kingdom, right? What we know as Judah. It says, this is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. He says, break up your unplowed heart and do not sow among thorns. In other words, he's saying that just as a farmer does not throw seed on unplowed ground, God is not going to throw his seed of blessing upon an unrepentant heart. Matter of fact, I think the New Living Translation, I think Aaron has that, it says that just like that. Break up your unplowed heart, your unrepentant heart. Okay? But then he goes forward, listen. And then he says, circumcise yourselves before the Lord, circumcise your hearts. You know, repent, get your heart right, right? You men of Judah, 
and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil that you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. So in preparation, he says, circumcise your hearts. He tells them that. He tells Israel, get this right. Repent. And he's more specific five chapters later. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness justice and righteousness on earth for in this i delight declares the lord listen but the days are coming he just hit a period and then said but the days are coming declares the lord when i will punish all of you who are circumcised only in the flesh he mentioned some people egypt judah edom ammon moab all who live in the desert regions. And then he said, for all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Oh yeah, you have the physical mark. Thank you for being obedient. That's great. But that's not the end of it. It's your heart that I want. See, it's not just some physical mark. So everything that I just read to you should not be a surprise. The Jews should have known this. Okay, once again, Paul didn't just bring this up out of the clear blue sky. They should have known this. It was in their own scriptures. Physical circumcision should have been a reminder for the cleaning up, the, the, the cutting away that was needed due to the sin in their hearts not just the cutting away physically, the cutting away spiritually in their hearts, see? Therefore, what Paul said earlier in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, matters a lot. He said this. He says, a man is not, a, think about this, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. I'm sure some Jews kind of fell to their knees at that point. What? Nor is circumcision outward and physical. No, he says a man, and you've heard me say this, and I'll continue to say it, a man is a Jew, meaning he's a real Jew, he's a true Jew, if he is one inwardly. And a circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. He says it's by the Holy Spirit. It's not by the written code. It's not by the law. I mean, flat out, the way he says that, right? This should have been an instant reminder to these Jews in preparation for what Paul is saying right now here in chapter 4. It just had to be a shot at him to go, I, I, I've never heard that. I've been taught something different my entire life. See? When it comes to being justified, when it comes to being declared righteous before God and by God, whether one is circumcised or uncircumcised has no effect because that is not the pathway to God. Faith is. He talked about it eight times in the last 10 or 11 verses in chapter 3, and now he's going to talk about it seven more times from here till the end of the chapter. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. He says, what counts is a new creation. What counts, if you will, is being born again. What counts is what's happening in your heart. See, he says, that does not matter. As a matter of fact, I used Abraham to prove it. See? Well, move with me now into verse 13. As Paul continues this uh, historical, as well as a doctrinal lesson for these confused Jews that are in the church at Rome. He says in verse 13, he says, listen, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. 
but it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. So as you can see, he's still relying very heavily on the subject of faith. But this time, you see he's showing a contrast, right? He's using the word the law. And he's saying that it had nothing to do, right? Works, or if you will, the law, had nothing to do with God's promise to Abraham. And so he's essentially saying here, here's the fallacy and here's the truth. Okay, that's what he's doing here. Here's the fallacy and here's the truth. Now, as we all uh, know well, Paul, folks, has been chipping away little by little on these Jewish fallacies, okay? All the way since we started this. In chapter 4, verse 3, mentioned it earlier, remember, Paul quoted Scripture. Paul knows what to do. I mean, he goes to the Old Testament. He knows. He quoted Scripture and said Abraham was justified by faith. In other words, he says he believed God. It was not works. And ultimately, he can say, because God said so. He said so in, in our own scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. He then used King David, and once again, what did he do? He quoted the Old Testament scripture saying that God credits righteousness apart from works. And so by using scripture, Paul is saying that Abraham and David both agreed with me, if you will, that justification is by faith. There's, there's nothing going on with works. And then, of course, as we saw Abraham using Abraham once again, he says he was declared righteous even before he was circumcised, which is a huge slap to these Jews. Looking at Genesis 15 and then 16 and then 17, we see that Abraham was justified somewhere around... Thir- Abraham was circumcised... And justify, let me get back. Abraham was justified somewhere around 13 to 14 years before God's demand of circumcision. Okay, once again, the scriptures said so. He's chipping away at these false Jewish beliefs. And they're big because they, do, they deal with redemption, they deal with being justified. See? And now adding to that, he says here in verse 13, it was not through the law that the promise to Abraham was received. Okay? In other words, it was not by works that the promise of Abraham was received. God did not give this promise to Abraham because he kept the law, is what that's saying. Folks, do you ever wonder sometimes as, you, as, you, as we kind of work our way little by little, where did the Jews come up with these beliefs? What, what the heck? Well, the answer is the rabbis. Those were the rabbis. It seems that many of them were really the false teachers of their day, to be honest with you. I quoted one uh, last week who said that Abraham literally sits at the gates of hell and will not let any circumcised Israelite into there. Where do you find that in Scripture? Well, you know the answer is you don't. Anywhere. But it's Jewish tradition. It's the Jewish belief. And they taught it, and they taught it to the next generation, and the next, and they just kept teaching it. Right? Right here in verse 13, when it comes to the belief that Abraham obeyed the law in order to receive the promise, the rabbis, it was the rabbis, folks, who believed that long before the law was given on Mount Sinai, Abraham already had a thorough knowledge of it and obeyed it in all its details. Did you catch that, folks? Somehow, Abraham supernaturally received the law way before Moses did. And he obeyed all of it. All of it. And of course, he and his descendants were rewarded by God, and they were given the promise. I guess he won the lottery. 
They, just, they taught this stuff over and over and over. But, of course, Scripture says otherwise. And we, like the Apostle Paul's been doing, we use that as our authority. Scripture is always the authority. And it has shown, by breaking this down one by one, they're all wrong. What the Jews were taught, because it wasn't taught in Scripture, what the Jews were taught by their own rabbis, all these traditions, was absolute baloney. Number one, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For if the inheritance depends on the law, right? If the inheritance depended on someone's works, that means it no longer depends on a promise, right? But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. It was through God's promise. It wasn't say, well, good luck. I hope you get there through your works. You can't have both. Secondly, and most importantly, and we know this, by the way, from Scripture, that Abraham lived centuries before who? Moses. He lived centuries before Moses. And to be specific, Galatians 3.17 is dealing with the exact same thing we're dealing with today, and it says the law came 430 years after the promise. Okay? Okay? All this to be said, folks, Paul was right when he said here in the end of verse 13, the promise came through the righteousness that came by faith. The law wasn't even on the planet for four centuries. But yet somehow we can believe that Abraham was so awesome that he just supernaturally got the law and obeyed it flawlessly. Therefore, God says, you are who I am choosing as to give my promise. And Paul just says, I don't think so. And he just gives them the scriptures to show them otherwise. Now, w- without getting into a lengthy study, uh, I did want to mention the promise. Okay? It was my goal to actually go through a few more verses today. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But I, I did want to mention the promise because, as you, as you can see here, it is mentioned. Paul said, Abraham and his offspring would receive the promise that he would be heir of the world. Paul uses a little different words when he says heir of the world, but it means the same thing. Now, the promise came, turn back with me if you would, the promise came in Genesis chapter 12. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. This is going to be a jet tour through the promise. (laughs) In Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. You can just read 1 through 3, but I'm going to read 1 through 7. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram, and he said, To your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So basically the very first thing that he mentions here is a part of this promise is the land. Okay? As you can see, Abraham himself went there, right? We know it prior as the land of Canaan, right? Abraham went there himself. He lived there. But he says... It will be his offspring who would possess 
the land. And ultimately, it was hundreds of years from them until Joshua led the Israelites into there and actually possessed the land. Okay? That was the land. Now, that's also brought up in detail, if you turn over just a couple chapters, to Genesis chapter 15. And this is just going to give you a roundabout picture of the land. In chapter 15, verses, uh, let me see, 18. Uh, we'll start on 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and he said, to your descendants, I give this land. He, he, he reiterated this promise that he had, because, you know, remember, Abraham wasn't, he didn't have any, uh, he didn't have any kids at the time, okay? I don't have any kids, right? He read that earlier in, in, in chapter 15. He said, I give you this land from the, the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Ammonites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So he actually gives you kind of a layout of the land that is there now or then. But he says, this is going to be the land of Israel. This is the land I gave you. Now, there is still an ongoing debate. It's not a big debate today, but there still is an ongoing debate, of course. Um, did that ever happen? Uh, there are some who believe that, that Israel did possess that land during the time of Solomon. And there are others, uh, like myself, and there are many others who believe they did not. And that will actually finally take place in the millennial reign. Between now and that point, there's really no other time it's going to happen unless Israel just starts taking up everybody. And uh, I don't see that happening. But once again, the Lord can do what he chooses. But uh, some people believe that the land has not yet been given all the way to Israel. So God is still holding this promise for Israel in all of that land. What they have now is just a sliver of that land. Another part of the promise to Abraham, as you can see, was a people, right? Right there in Genesis, back up, Genesis chapter 15, in verses 4 through 6. Matter of fact, I'll, uh, I'll start reading in verse 2. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Well, that's a lot. And of course, by the way, he finishes up there in verse 6 with the verse we all know very well. Abraham, what? He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. By the way, just so you know, Abraham was, as I mentioned earlier in, in chapter tw uh, 12, Abraham was 75 years old when God made him this promise of the land and everything else. There was blessings. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So it was a little while, Right? Because God promises something doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow, you know? And so Abraham had to go through some tests, did he not? He did. But also in uh, Genesis 22, if you want to just move forward a few, Genesis 22. This is, where, this is where Abraham was tested with the killing, or if you will, the sacrifice of Isaac. Many of you remember that. And so here in verse 17, he reiterates the fact because Abraham passed this test, right? Remember that? He was going to kill him. He says, I will surely bless you, verse 17, and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the, sun, uh, on the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities and their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So once again, you have this issue with a people, right? Abraham's going to have a lot of people. And by the way, just as a side note, who are Abraham's people physically? 
Can we know? The Jews and the Arabs. Abraham had two boys, didn't he? He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. All those people in the Middle East are, if you will, descendants of Abraham. Spiritually speaking, of course, it's all believers. But um, there was a lot, wasn't there? There was a lot. But he was promised a people. Thirdly, was the promise of a blessing. Okay? All the nations, I just read this, all the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. How does that work? All, all the nations on the earth, really, everyone will be blessed through Abraham. Now, this is quoted, by the way, five times. Five times just here in Genesis and even a couple times in the New Testament. Listen to one of them, Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9. Paul says to the, the people, and of course the Galatians, I've quoted them a lot today because they were struggling with this whole thing with law versus grace and faith and whatnot. It says, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The scripture, he says, foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham by saying, all nations will be blessed through you. That's the good news. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay? So he's saying here that all of the nations, Jew and Gentile, are justified. They are blessed the same way that Abraham was justified and blessed, which is by faith. Okay? But in going into Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, it says, If you are Christ's, if you are of Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, you are an heir according to the promise. Did you catch that? If you are of Christ, which is by faith, you are an offspring of Abraham. You are an heir according to the promise. You kind of left the whole people group there in the Middle East, didn't he? Now we're talking spiritually. And therefore, the fulfillment of this promise of blessing was found in Christ. Right? Listen to Genesis twenty-two eighteen. He says, through Abraham, God is telling Abraham, through your seed, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Through your seed, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Now pay attention to Galatians 3.16. I know I've got, you've got to write a lot of scriptures down. He says the promises were, he's talking about that passage here. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That's what I just read you in Genesis 22. The scripture, he says, does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. You said you catch all that? Wow. Interesting because the word seed is can be singular or plural, by the way. It's kind of like deer, right? We don't say deers. Well, I'm sure there are some who, but we, we don't say deers. Same thing with seed, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul knew. He says it's not just the seed as in a descendant, it's a singular, it's many. Or just the opposite. It's not all those people. It's one who is Christ. The only way a person can share in the promised blessings of Abraham is to be a fellow heir with Jesus Christ through faith in him. There's generally, uh, generally three things of the promise. There are people who can break it down more than that if you want. But it's a land the promise of a land, the promise of a people, and the promise of blessing, which is the redemption part, which we're blessed as, 
Therefore, we, as you see, are heirs according to the promise because we are of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. Well, there's a lot to be said in those two little verses. Uh, I really did want to go further, but I thought that's not going to happen. So we will pick up, obviously, next time. But I, I do hope that as we went through these, um, just like the ones prior, the verses prior, these are corrective verses. Okay? These are corrective verses. What Paul was doing here is he's correcting the bad theology that these Jews had received from the rabbis. He did like four things just before we hit verse 13 to say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, and that's wrong. You know how I know that? The Scripture says this, 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 and this. The Bible says, the Scripture says, even in our own text, the old, what we know as the Old Testament, these were all corrective, okay? It is so easy, folks, to be misled by people with what I would call a ministerial title, okay? Back then, they trusted in the rabbis to lead them down the straight and narrow, and they trusted them to the point that most of them never even looked at the scriptures themselves. The rabbi said so, and that's what I believe, People today are no different. People today, with ministerial titles, they abuse Scripture. And sadly, the church, just like the Jews, never look up the Scriptures themselves. How many people have come to you, relatives, friends, and says, well, blah, 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 and you're like, what? Well, so-and-so said that, or I read it in his book, or I heard it in his sermon. But they've never looked at it themselves. Folks, when you, when you hear or read some of the things that these people believe simply because someone said so, I, I, I am beyond mind-boggled at what it is they believe. These are not little differences that we have. Dave mentioned some this morning in eschatology. We, people may have differences, and that's okay. These are not secondary issues sometimes. You're going, what on God's green earth? Where, where did you get something so nuts? But they believe it because so-and-so said so. I don't even have to have the Scripture. Or the Scripture is so far out of context, it is bizarre. You couldn't, you couldn't even imply it from the context. But of course, they don't know that because they've never read it. Just like, these, just like these Jews never read it. Folks, we have to be careful. As you heard me say on January 1st of this year, we have to be discerning. We need to be discerning. We need to be in God's word. We're not going to be able to differentiate truth from error unless we're in the word of God. Folks, there was a lot of time spent in Scripture talking about false doctrine. Paul does a lot of that, even just here, specifically to the Jews. Obviously, he does it to believers and Christians as well, uh, uh, Gentiles. But it's amazing how much is talked about. And can you uh, even imagine if Paul was writing to the church today? It would be an encyclopedia of what is so ridiculous and what is so bizarre that is out there. And yet so-called Christians are eating it up. It is amazing. It's sad, but it's amazing. So I encourage you folks, be faithful in God's word. I encourage you as you are today, be here in church. You know, And one of the things we do, which is the greatest thing in my mind that we do, is we teach through the Bible. Dave does it, I do it. We teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. You're going to be able to catch me if I'm not in the context. If I all of a sudden start to waver towards some kind of belief, you're going to go, whoa, hey, hold on a second. How did you get that? And hopefully because we're going through one verse to the next verse, you're going to know. But we, try, we do that on purpose so people are equipped. So you know when somebody says something, you're going, doesn't sound right. You don't have to always know what the answer is, but when somebody says something, you should be able to go, you know, uh, that just doesn't, 
That can't be right. No way. Be in God's word. Be in our Sunday school class. Be on a Wednesday night, but continue this so you're absolutely grounded in Scripture. It saddens me every day that I see hundreds of thousands of people who are duped by people that you're just sitting back in shock going, how can you follow that and think that is Christianity and think that that is scriptural? I know we all think we're above it, but you know, as we can see here, even these Jews who listened to their rabbis their entire lives, they're being corrected. Every other verse, wrong, 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 wrong. Because you know why? Which is what I appreciate about Paul. He says, because the scripture here says so, and the scripture here says so, and the scripture here says so. And that's always our standard. It's always to go back to the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for this time today. Thank you, Lord, that we can learn historically, and I'm sure really leading up to today, still stands true. There are people who believe, uh, Jews, who still believe in certain ways of salvation. Uh, They still believe in their phylacteries. They still believe in wearing a yarmulke. They still believe that because of who they are, that they were heaven bound. And Lord, yet your own scriptures to the Jews tell them otherwise. I pray that you'd open the eyes of our Jewish friends around the world, Lord, to see the truth in the gospel, to see the truth in the Pentateuch, to see the truth of needing a a circumcised heart, to see the the suffering servant of Jesus Christ toward the end of Isaiah 52 and then on into 53. But Lord, I also pray for people today, and maybe there's people in this church, Lord, who who have been duped, who have been suckered. Lord, we are just surrounded by people who maybe believe the same thing, it's just kind of in a different culture. And Lord, it's not biblical. They've changed something in Scripture, or they've used a word, or they've used a verse, and they create their own doctrine and belief system. And simply because somebody has heard that verse before, they just believe it. God, open our eyes. God, help us to be discerning. I pray that you bring down the false kingdom of darkness that is out there, uh, duping many, many people, many of them sincere, and I'm sure some believers. Open their eyes, Lord. But Lord, help us, most importantly, to be prepared that we would be people of your word. Like the Apostle Paul, he says, what does the Scripture say? And may that be our mantra. What does the Scripture say in context? And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.